Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you from New York. Today on the program... The Knesset votes to take away a key power of Israel's Supreme Court. And as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu urges calm, the nation's political center and left erupt in anger. I'll talk to the New York Times' Tom Friedman about the politics involved and with his colleague Emily Bazelon about the legal issues. Then, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, on the good news and the bad news from America's southern border. Finally, did President Putin lose or gain power after Prigozhin's failed mutiny? I'll ask Russian journalist in exile, Mikhail Zigar. But first, here's my take. The mysterious disappearance of China's foreign minister, Qin Gang, is a timely reminder that the future of U.S.-China relations will be determined not just by American policy and what's happening domestically in the United States, such as the presidential election campaign. It will also be shaped by developments in China, which at this point are opaque but troubling. From what outsiders can tell, China is reverting to a Mao-era style of politics that we have not seen for decades, more significant than Chingang's mysterious removal from power after the authorities attributed his absence to health reasons, is the doctoring of websites and press releases to expunge his participation and achievements from the past. Who controls the past controls the future, George Orwell wrote in his novel 1984. And that ominous dictum seems to be the guide to China's elite politics these days. This is a far cry from the technocratic government that Deng Xiaoping ushered in as he reformed China in the 1980s. In those days, the Chinese political system seemed a contradiction in terms, a dictatorship that had age caps or term limits for high offices. Where else did one see this kind of limitation of authoritarian rule? Today, once again, there are no limits to the power of China's ruler, what the scholar Elizabeth Economy has called China's third revolution, the first personified by Mao, the second by Deng, and now by Xi, is still going strong. That third revolution is not just about domestic politics. Xi has consolidated his own power and put the Chinese Communist Party back at the center of society. But he has also sought to present a much stronger and more assertive China to the world. And those decisions have had ripple effects across the globe, especially in Asia, where China's neighbors have been rattled by Xi's more aggressive posture and policies. The U.S. has not handled relations with China perfectly. 
The Biden administration was needlessly confrontational from the outset, publicly upbraiding Beijing at their first meeting of senior officials. The U.S. has also maintained Donald Trump's tariffs on China, despite the fact that they've been expensive failures. Remember, it is American consumers who pay for those tariffs, not the Chinese. Trump provided tens of billions in additional subsidies to farmers just to make up for the losses they suffered because of these policies. And for a while, it seemed that American policies towards Beijing were being announced with no effort to maintain a working relationship with China, despite its status as the world's second largest economy, a nuclear weapons power with a UN veto. But Biden has corrected course. Several of his senior officials, including the secretaries of state, commerce and the treasury, have met with their Chinese counterparts and tried to stop the decline in relations between the two countries. Antony Blinken said to me in an interview that world leaders had been telling him that they expected the U.S. and China to build a decent working relationship. The administration is taking seriously the idea that it will restrict only a limited number of high-end technologies from being shared with China using the metaphor of a small yard with a high fence. Even some American policies that would provoke Chinese opposition, such as looming new regulations around U.S. investment into China, are now being signaled to the Chinese in advance, in that particular case by Janet Yellen. There are still areas where the U.S. could make a more serious effort. If the Biden administration wants to have productive military-to-military dialogue, maintaining Trump-era sanctions on China's defense minister would seem an odd way to signal that desire. Far better to waive the sanctions so that two sides can talk and avoid misunderstandings on issues like Taiwan. But the ball is really in China's court. Unfortunately, Chinese policy has been marked by an assertiveness and even bellicosity that has broken sharply with the past three decades. She has staked out expansive claims for China in the South China Sea, increased military activity around Taiwan, clashed with India in the Himalayas, demanded that Australia cease any criticism of his country, pledged his country's unqualified support for Moscow, even as Russia's aggression in Ukraine escalates, and he has ramped up criticism of the United States. None of these policies seem to be working. Countries around China have become far more active in countering Beijing's influence and searching for assistance elsewhere, especially with America. From Japan to the Philippines to India, nations are pushing back. Will Beijing recognize this and change? Is an increasingly autocratic and closed decision-making system capable of learning and adapting? Well, Qinggang's mysterious removal does not suggest a positive answer. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Israel finds itself embroiled in deep political crisis days after its parliament passed the first major step in Prime Minister Netanyahu's judicial overhaul. This part of the legislation eliminated the Israeli Supreme Court's power to block government actions that the court deems unreasonable. The controversial move drove crowds of Israelis back onto the streets in protest. The White House weighed in as well, saying the move was unfortunate. 
To understand the complexities of Israel and the Middle East, who better to ask than the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, who won his first two Pulitzer Prizes reporting from that region. Welcome, Tom. Explain to us first, what is this about? You know, because it feels like a small step, but it is part of a series of moves planned to curtail the Supreme Court's power. And why are they trying to do that? Why is this narrow majority trying to do that? So, Fareed, you have to start out with uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's political situation. He tried to make a political comeback. He had become so unpopular within his own party, lost so many allies, that he had to reach over the fence of Israeli politics and bring into Israeli politics people who had never been there before. Uh, Tamir Prado, the former head of the Mossad, uh, basically equated them to the American Ku Klux Klan. So imagine if a president... Uh, brought uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan into the cabinet. Now, the only way he could hold these people together in a coalition with his other only allies left, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, he basically had to accede to their demands. What are their big demands? Um, This Israeli version of the Ku Klux Klan or the American Proud Boys basically wants one thing. They're Jewish supremacists. They want annexation of the West Bank. More settlements, um, more absorption in the West Bank, ultimately annexation. What do the ultra-Orthodox want? They want um, their sons not to have to serve in the military, and they want their schools to be free to teach only religious subjects and no math, science, reading, or democratic civics. Who stands in the way of that? One body left in Israel with independence, the judiciary, the Supreme Court. So the religious want the Supreme Court out of the way, basically so it won't interfere with their efforts basically to teach purely religious subjects and not have to serve in the military, and the right-wing Jewish supremacists want the court out of the way so it won't be um, interfering with their attempts to seize a more Palestinian land and build more Palestinian settlements and to legalize more wildcat illegal Israeli settlements. That's what this is about. And it's fair to say that these people are on the streets because there are very few limits on uh, on, the, on a, an elected government in Israel. There is no written constitution. There is no upper house, no Senate. There are no state governments. Uh, this is what you have. And that's why people are out on the street, because in a sense, the street is where you can be heard. Well, you know, you really can't make this up in, in some ways, Fareed. Um, the Supreme Court's ability to um, basically uh, curtail government excess is this a reasonableness cause that comes out of British law. Why would a government want to get rid of a reasonableness cause that the court enjoyed unless they wanted to do things that were unreasonable? Of course, that's what the Israeli public understood. Now, Netanyahu has been saying this is a small thing, this is a little thing. Nonsense. This was a power grab. It had nothing to do with legal reform. That None of that's on the level. If you wanted to do legal reform, if you wanted to do the Israeli equivalent of a constitutional amendment in the United States, oh my goodness, you would have done that over a long period of time, brought in legal exports, experts worked for a consensus. They did none of this. They had a majority. They rammed it through. End of story. Now, when you, th- when you think going forward, um, what is a little worrying, uh, and I've talked to Israeli friends of mine who talk about this, is that the parts of the coalition that you're describing uh, that, that are backing Netanyahu, uh, particularly on some of this more extreme stuff, they're all the people in Israel who have eight children. And the people who are opposing, the, the, the old secular elites and such, the tech guys, they're all you know, having two children, if that. 
Um, is this a port portentous for Israel's future demographically? You know, definitely, Fareed. You know, this is both a legal fight and a and a social revolution, basically. You know, the ultra orthodox you know, represent about twenty percent of the population. Their their numbers double. You know, every uh, twenty twenty five years, they'll be forty percent of Israel. Uh, you know, in twenty twenty five years, a forty percent of Israel that means will not have studied science, math, English, or democratic civics. Um, the uh, secular, um, you know, tech uh, educated Western oriented part of Israel. Uh, basically pays tw uh, uh, is 20% of the population. They, they pay about 90% of the taxes, and they fight 105% of the wars. So behind this, this sort of legal issue is, is, a, is a feeling that, hey, you know, I was ready to do that as long as it was live and let live. You know, Freed, I've lived in two countries in the Middle East um, uh, intensely, Lebanon and Israel. They have one big thing in common. They're tiny countries with incredibly diverse populations. Very small, but incredibly diverse. The only way countries like that can work is on the principle of uh, live and let live no victor, no vanquished. That's what Lebanon blew up, uh, unfortunately, over the last 20 years. That's what Israel is blowing up now. Live and let live. It was the only way, and Netanyahu was ready to burn it up um, just in order to pursue uh, political power uh, and keep himself out of jail. And one more thing, Tom, in your uh, reporting, you've talked to the president uh, a, a bunch of times about all this. Um, you say that there is a kind of Hail Mary here that might, might save the situation, which is that Israel and Bibi Netanyahu want a normalization with Saudi Arabia, but the Saudis might impose terms that make it very hard to do some of the more radical stuff that, that Bibi wants to do. How likely is that given that the Saudis have not seemed particularly interested in the fate of the Palestinian people? Yeah, um, the, the, the problem for the Saudis is they can't get this deal through except under a Joe Biden presidency um, uh, because Democrats wouldn't support it at all under Republican presidency. Um, and, and that means Joe Biden has to be attentive to his base and his base of the party. Um, uh, you know, cares a lot uh, that this be a fair deal, fair for the Palestinians. So the Saudi, Saudis may not be interested in this, but um, uh, the U.S. Senate is, is quite interested in this, and the base of the Democratic Party is interested in this. You know, it's an ironic situation, Fareed. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, holds a lot of the future in his hands. He may not be interested in Jewish history, but Jewish history is interested in him. <laughs> Tom Friedman, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Fareed. When we come back, we'll dig further into Israel's judicial overhaul. Is Netanyahu right that its judges have become too powerful? Should the U.S. pursue similar reforms? We talk to Emily Bazelon after the break. We are back on GPS talking about Israel's judicial overhaul. The Israeli right says that the country's Supreme Court has become too strong an impediment to democratic rule. Many on the American left say the same thing about the U.S. Supreme Court. So what is the proper role of high courts? Joining me now is Emily Bazelon, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She is also a fellow at Yale Law School and the co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest podcast. Emily, first, let's talk about Israel. Um, why, why is it that so many people feel that this is kind of overreach on the part of the of the uh, the, the, the democratic or legislative branch uh, of the Israeli government in terms of curtailing the court's power. 
Israel has an unusual constitutional system of checks and balances and separation of powers. And the Israeli Supreme Court plays a kind of singular, very important role as a primary check on the government's power. You know, in the United States, we have several checks and balances. We have two houses of government, both the House uh, in Congress and the Senate. We have a separation between the executive and the legislative branches, and we have a written constitution that's really hard to change. None of those things exist in Israel. There is one House of Parliament, the Knesset. It's very much connected to the executive branch because the prime minister leads the party that rules the Knesset. And there isn't a written constitution. A kind of ordinary majority of parliament can change what are called basic laws that have a kind of constitutional status in Israel. And so for all of those reasons, the Israeli Supreme Court as a protector of minority rights and a check on majoritarian rule is crucial. And that's why these reforms from this right-wing government of Netanyahu have such a dramatic impact and have generated such a swell of protest. People say that the Supreme Court in Israel has sort of arrogated to itself powers. But, I mean, in a sense, the American Supreme Court did that. There was never in the Constitution this power of judicial review where the the court can essentially decide whether something is constitutional or not. That happens later when Justice Chief Justice Marshall just took that, decided that that was one of the court's missions. Right. In the United States, our constitution is written in the 1780s. And then in this famous case you're talking about, Marbury versus Madison, that's 1803. That's when the Supreme Court says we have the power to say what the law is, to say what the constitution means. For a long time, the United States was kind of an outlier. Lots of countries did not have judicial review. But then, you know, starting in the 60s and 70s, partly relating to the fall of communism, for lots of different reasons around the world, countries start to write constitutions in which judicial review, the power of courts, becomes very important. And so Israel kind of joins with that transformation and constitutional revolution in the 1990s when the Israeli Supreme Court declared that the basic laws were like a constitution and that it, the Supreme Court, had the power to interpret those laws. And what uh, Netanyahu's government is trying to do by, by curbing the power of the judiciary seems to me quite similar to what some of these populist governments in Eastern Europe are doing, uh, Hungary, Orban, the Polish. In, in every case, it seems like it's the, the effort is to say brute majority rules should be more important than, than what judges do. Right. So if you're an elected party, you've been chosen to rule the country and the court is obstructing you, getting in your way, you get frustrated. And this idea that minority rights should continue to matter, that there's this larger framework of the constitution, you wanna get that out of your way. And so you're absolutely right that in Hungary and Poland um, and in other countries, Turkey, uh, an attack on the power of the courts to try to sort of sweep the judges out of the way is a sign of trouble for democracy. And in some other countries, it has been the first step toward um, a slide from democracy to autocracy. And how should we think about America there? You know, because there is this fear in on the American left largely that you have this very conservative Supreme Court 
that is upending a lot of settled uh, law in, in America? Right. So we've been talking about what happens when the courts become too weak. It is also possible for courts to become too strong. So in the United States, we have a feature that no other country has. We have life tenure for judges. That means the Supreme Court justices can sit for 30 or 40 years. You are having a huge amount of power amassed in the hands of a very small group of people. And it's random when they leave the bench. And so you have a kind of disconnect between political uh, influence over the court, the ability of Republicans or Democrats to appoint the justices they want, and the composition of the court. The court can kind of lurch pretty far away from American public opinion. And it also is very hard to amend the Constitution in the United States. We haven't really done that at all in 50 years. And so that means that the court's declaration about what the Constitution means holds sway over all of us. Um, For those reasons, liberals in the U.S. are arguing right now that the Supreme Court has too much power and that there are reasons to try to pull back and give more power to the Congress, more power to the executive branch. How good an idea that is, whether it can really happen, that all remains to be determined. Emily Bazelon, we always get smarter listening to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Fareed. Next on GPS, I talk to the man in charge of tackling America's border crisis, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We will be back after the break. On Capitol Hill on Wednesday, there was a very heated House Judiciary Committee hearing on oversight of the Department of Homeland Security. Many of the Republicans on the committee berated Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas for what Chairman Jim Jordan called a Biden border crisis. On the other side of the aisle, the committee's top Democrat warned at the start that the hearings would be nothing more than political theater. Far away from Capitol Hill, I sat down with Secretary Mayorkas in Aspen the prior week to try to understand what is really going on at America's southern border and, more specifically, What has happened since the expiration of Title 42 in May? That was the COVID-era policy that allowed law enforcement to send migrants swiftly away from the American border. Mr. Secretary, pleasure to have you on. Great to see you, Fareed. Thank you for having me. Tell us what the situation is on the border now, because in May, there were fears that we were going to be overwhelmed. What is happening? So... um Uh, We have dispelled those fears through a very uh, thoughtful, comprehensive approach to irregular migration to our southern border. It has two main components to it. One is to build lawful pathways for people to um, come to the United States, those who qualify, in a safe and orderly way, a humanitarian way of enabling people to seek asylum in the United States as our laws provide. And the second part of it is to disincentivize those who do not avail themselves of the lawful pathways. We have seen an approximately 70% drop in the number of individuals encountered at our southern border as a result. So all that sounds like you're handling the the kind of crisis of the moment, uh, but... 
I mean, you had 2.4 million apprehensions of the border. You're getting all these people trying to come in. They're all essentially claiming to be asylum seekers. They seem to me at least ordinary migrants, economic migrants, maybe fleeing poverty, disease, some gang warfare, as people have traditionally. Isn't the asylum system broken if everybody can claim, if there's no real distinction between a migrant and an asylum seeker? The asylum system is broken. Um, the time uh, from initial encounter of an individual who makes a claim for relief and the final adjudication of that claim is all too often many years. And the difficulty is people settle, they have children here in the United States, and then it, gets, it becomes very difficult uh, to remove them so should they not succeed in their ultimate asylum claim. We, ne- we are dealing with... Fundamentally, we are dealing with a broken immigration system, and that includes the asylum process. So why don't we fix the laws? Why don't we do a real overhaul of this whole system? I mean, it seems like Europeans are beginning to think about the same thing. Um, uh, We're gridlocked in Congress. It's Uh, as simple as that. I I think there's unanimity about the fact, the fundamental fact that we're dealing with a broken immigration system. And yet the solution is proving tremendously elusive for decades now. And that relates. The 90s is the last yeah. time our immigration yeah. system was uh, legislated. And another part that, that strikes me as a, as a it's clearly broken. So we have we've lost the ability to really take in skilled migrants. Uh, Canada is taking in 250,000, whereas we're taking in 85,000 skilled migrants, H1 uh, visas. Um, we have eight times the population of Canada, and they're taking four times as many skilled migrants. And we now do something which strikes me as almost like the symbol of how broken the system is. We do a lottery. I mean, you know, a lottery suggests capriciousness, whimsy, uh, not r- rules or, you know, qualifications, uh, any kind of functioning system. It's, it's literally saying you're taking a gamble. And um, number one, we have a lottery. Number two, we have a numerical cap, a numerical limit that is not in any way tied to market needs. It is a historic legislated numerical limit. Canada needs laborers, skilled, unskilled, and the like. Um, And they can calibrate their um, uh, openness to migration, to bringing uh, workers in according to market needs. We are uh, divorced. And no no prospect of... Any, any legislative fix? I, uh, I remain hopeful, um, but um, it does not look promising right now, and it has eluded us year in and year out for decades. After we taped that interview, a judge struck down the new Biden asylum policy, but then temporarily stayed his own ruling. So the Biden policy currently remains in effect. We will be watching to see what happens next. Coming up next on GPS, a Russian journalist on whether Putin's grip on power was shaken at all by the recent would-be mutiny. It's been more than a month since the failed mutiny in Russia by the Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. And questions still swirl about Putin's grip on power. Did the failed mutiny weaken Putin or make him even stronger? 
To answer that key question and more, I'm joined by the exiled Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar. He was the founding editor-in-chief of the Russian news channel TV Rain. He also has a new book out, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Mikhail, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. First, this question we're all trying to understand. Has this mutiny weakened Putin? And the, the reason I think many of us wonder and think maybe it did is he isn't punishing Prigozhin. He hasn't punished much of the Wagner group. He needs them in some way or he feels he can't act. In the, it seems that for a guy who likes revenge, this seems odd. Yeah, but even more, uh, he used to be considered a person who is in control, who, um, who controls all the elite, all his inner circle, and who is the guarantor of, the, of peace, the only guarantor of peace and stability. And now for many people, inside his own bureaucracy, it's clear that the emperor is naked. He, he cannot guarantee anything. He cannot control even his, uh, his puppet, because everyone knows that Prigozhin used to be his puppet for so many years. And, uh, and yes, he's, he's not punishing Prigozhin. He's still in St. Petersburg. He spent most of uh, that month in St. Petersburg. He was even allowed to come to Moscow to meet with, with Putin personally. Is he, as far as we know, he's still in St. Petersburg? Yes, we, we, uh, it was revealed, um, just, it, it has just been confirmed that he was attending the, the, summit, the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg. The subtitle of your book um, gets at a very interesting question that a lot of people have. I mean, everybody from Henry Kissinger to Europeans say they thought Putin was rational, he was calculating, he was incremental, and they did not, as a result, predict or think that he would declare war in February when he did. What, why did he make that decision? Uh, you know, Putin is not as rational as uh, some people in the West believe. He is he's very irrational, and most of his decisions are deeply rooted in, in his psychology, in his youth, in, 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 how, in, in the people he, uh, he used to talk to uh, many years ago. It's, um, I describe it in my book that uh, most of his prejudice for, uh, against Ukrainian nationalists uh, is just because of his, uh, his favorite novel, he, read, he, he was reading when he was a young student. That was a detective story about a Soviet spy Stirlitz who was fighting against Ukrainian nationalists. So it's, it's, really, it's really very weird how, how Putin perceives uh, uh, Russian history. Uh, but at the same time, he is a part of his um, generation and he is the, the part of Russian traditional uh, historical narrative, imperialist historical narrative existed in Russia. That's unfortunately the only, the only version of history we have always had. And uh, I, with, with this book, I'm trying to to debunk uh, the Russian historical mythology because it's uh, it's probably the most dangerous part of Russian propagandist narrative. Because Putin will go, but for many people, all those myths would remain the same. One of the things that people say is that. Uh, Putin has always had, as you say, this kind of ultra-Russian nationalist narrative. Then COVID happens. He stops meeting with anybody, foreigners. He, he gets more and more isolated. He restricts him to himself to a circle of real uh, kind of acolytes and courtiers. You have to 
you had to um, quarantine for two weeks before you could even mm-hmm. see him. And so maybe that also explains that he really got into a kind of hothouse of just these these highly absolutely. nationalist Russians. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's uh, it's weird that during the, the COVID months, he uh, has become even more obsessed with history than, than, than before. Because uh, after that, he started writing articles about the history of Poland, history of Ukraine, and he's always lecturing Russians about, uh, about history. But it's, it's all false. It's all a uh, falsified version of, of Russian history. He has created some kind of imaginary empire, and he's trying to impose that, um, that, that point of view. And actually, it, it works for, for so many people who are, who are not... Um, not not major- I don't think that it works for majority of Russians, but, but ma- ma- many people buy it. There was an anecdote in the FT that uh, Sergei Lavrov, the longtime foreign minister, who apparently was told about the invasion only two hours before, mm-hmm. uh, was asked, who is advising Vladimir Putin? And he said, oh, I can tell you, he has three main advisors, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> So it's to Stalin, your point about Stalin. history. Yeah. The fourth one, an important one, is Stalin. Stalin. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Um, at the end of the day, do you think um, his days are numbered in any meaningful sense? You know, actually, uh, the sources in Moscow, I believe, right after Prigozhin's mutiny, started telling me that uh, they used to be sure that uh, his situation is very stable and he's there, he might be there for years to come, but now they think that probably one year at least because uh, the situation is, uh, the, the system is, is shaking. Uh, many people from, from his elite understand that he is, uh, he's not there and they have to prepare um, for Russia after Putin. And at the same time, you know, and he thinks that he, he underestimates all the, the difficulties of his situation. And he thinks that, that the time is on his side because he's waiting for American elections. He, he's waiting for Donald Trump to be back. And he's sure that once Donald Trump is back in the White House, he's going to be fine. There's going to be no war, no resistance from Ukrainian side, no support for Ukraine. He'll kind uh, of deal with Trump. Yeah, and that, that's the ideal happy end for, for President Putin. Mikhail, pleasure to have you on and best of luck. Your reporting has been fantastic. Thank you. Next on GPS, two prominent public officials, two powerful nations, two disappearances. What can we learn from these troubling events, one in Russia, one in China? That story when we come back. Now for the last look. In recent weeks, two high-profile figures in two notoriously shadowy political capitals have gone missing, and their disappearances speak volumes about their respective countries. I'll start with the case of the missing Chinese foreign minister, Qin Gang, whose case I mentioned at the top of the show. He was last seen publicly in a slate of meetings on June 25th. This week, it was announced that Qin was removed from his post as foreign minister, Ministry of Foreign Affairs websites were then scrubbed of any mention of him. Beijing is thick with rumors about him. Qing's disappearance and removal is all the more astounding considering that he was the protege of Xi Jinping, handpicked as the U.S. ambassador two years ago. He then catapulted over more experienced leaders to become the youngest foreign minister of China in 70 years. Whatever happened to him, 
This episode highlights the opacity of the Chinese political system. Senior officials often disappear from view with little, if any, public explanation. Presumably, some of the secrecy in this case is due to the fact that Xin was close to Xi Jinping, and any investigation into him would reflect poorly on President Xi's judgment. But if Qing had become the victim of his political rivals, then it's a shame. As The Economist notes, Qing was clever and surprisingly candid with diplomats. He spent years studying the United States. He was capable of charming foreign dignitaries, diffusing tensions, and holding firm to the Communist Party line. These are skills Xi Jinping ought to value, and certainly not ones that all of Xin's rivals possess. Now, that brings me to the case of the other missing person in another country known for the murkiness of its domestic politics. I'm speaking of General Sergei Surovikin of Russia, who was last seen in a hostage-style video last month as the Wagner Group's Yevgeny Prigozhin and his troops marched on Moscow. In the video, Surovikin, wearing fatigues but stripped of all insignia, pled awkwardly with Prigozhin to abandon the coup. The awkwardness perhaps indicates coercion. Surovikin was close to Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has called him a man who is not afraid of responsibility. U.S. intelligence officials told the New York Times that Surovikin had advanced knowledge of the attempted coup. The Times also reported that Surovikin was believed to be detained under questioning late last month. Though it's easy to see why General Surovikin could make President Putin uneasy, this is actually a disappearance that is bad for Putin and his immediate objective, winning the war in Ukraine. Surovikin earned the nickname General Armageddon from his time in command of Russian forces in Syria. His tactics are brutal and abhorrent, but considering Putin's aims, they are effective. He is known as a dangerously competent military leader. In October, Putin appointed Surovikin head of the Russian forces in Ukraine. He promptly withdrew from Kherson, built up Russia's defensive positions, and stepped up attacks on Ukraine's power plants. Now, to be very clear, I'm not praising the man or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But these were clear-eyed, tough decisions, given the Kremlin wanted an aggressive offensive. And for these efforts, he was demoted in favor of General Valery Gerasimov, who spearheaded an ineffective winter offensive that cost Russian forces dearly. Now, Surovikin is missing, and Gerasimov continues to run the Ukraine effort. As Dara Masikov writes in the New York Times, the current defense minister and Gerasimov both of whom are willing to tell Putin only what he wants to hear, will continue to conduct the war in an inept fashion. For the sake of familiarity, the Kremlin has chosen to reinforce failure. It's the nature of a closed political system that yes-men and political operators win out over competence every time. These twin events in China and Russia remind us of the virtues of an open and democratic political system despite all its messiness. You know, we often despair at the tumult of democracies. Look at British politics over the last few years, with its revolving door of prime ministers and constant leaks, resignations, and recriminations. We cringe at the volatility of Trump's cabinet, his abrupt, much-publicized dismissals of his generals and other staff, their attacks on him. It all seems undignified, like a soap opera unraveling before our eyes. But on the whole... It's a good thing. It is open politics, openly engaged in. There is no mystery as to why Boris Johnson had to resign. 
No one claims that Rex Tillerson left the State Department because he got ill. In democracies, we wash our dirty laundry in public. And the events in China and Russia in recent weeks show us that perhaps that laundry system is a key ingredient of democracy's resilience. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.